On the night of August 6th, or early hours of August 7th, 1985, just outside of the picturesque village of Tulse Hunt Darcy in Essex, England, a shocking attack left five members and three generations of a family brutally murdered. At first, the police thought they were dealing with an open and shut case of murder-suicide, suspecting that it was Sheila Caffell, diagnosed with schizophrenia, who had shot her adoptive parents and her twin sons before turning the gun on herself. But as one detective set out to prove, there were certain elements of that narrative that didn't add up, and the spotlight turned onto Sheila's brother, Jeremy Bamber. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and welcome to the first episode of the companion podcast to the HBO Max series, The Murders at White House Farm. Across the next six episodes of The Murders at White House Farm, the podcast, we'll be talking to some of the key people involved in the making of the show, as well as those who have close personal connections to the actual case itself. Focusing each episode on a particular theme, we'll pick up where the series left off, providing insight as to how it was made, and attempting to get to the dark heart of what really happened in that typically quiet farmhouse in Essex, England, in the mid-1980s. For this first episode, we're going to be talking about the setting of the murder to give our American listeners a little context about what both Essex and England as a whole were like at the time. Obviously, England in 1985 was a very different place than it is now, and news and information may have spread slower. But nevertheless, the murders at White House Farm immediately became one of the biggest and most sensationalized news stories of the year. To say the entire nation was gripped by the events of the time and the case as it unfolded is a massive understatement. Who better then to set that scene for us than the man who set the scene for the entire series, director Paul Whittington. Among other things, Paul has directed the 2017 true crime drama, Little Boy Blue, about the 2007 murder of 11-year-old Reese Jones. So he's well-versed in delicately dramatizing real-life tragedy. But for the murders at White House Farm, he had to turn the clock back more than 30 years to accurately capture the time and place on both a localized and larger level. As the director of all six episodes, Paul was responsible for bringing the past to life in an authentic manner and shaping the environment for the harrowing drama as it unfolded across each of them. As we'll hear, doing so wasn't just about capturing the emotion of those involved and the tensions between them, but also about evoking the mood of a country as a whole as it witnessed the aftermath of the events take over the tabloids and unfold in real time. Recreating that was a mammoth task and a challenge on multiple levels, as you'll hear Paul explain. Let's dive in just to your personal background with this story. Do you remember the crime? How old were you? Do you remember the news coverage? I do. I am old enough to remember it. I was uh, 15 years old at the time. The only knowledge I had of it was through kind of the tabloid media version of it, really. I remembered the initial headlines of a young mother who it appeared had had killed her own family, including her own children. And then I, re- I had some memory of how 
the narrative kind of swung around to starting looking at the brother as the perpetrator of the crime and not Sheila. But it was very much in those kind of broad brushstroke headlines. And I didn't know anything about the detail of the case at all. Now, you previously you've delved into true crime with the series Little Boy Blue. Did that in any way lead you to this project? I've done uh, a number of true crime stories in the recent past, actually. And I think I do have a natural interest in real stories, but I kind of judge each one on its individual kind of merits, as it were. It's really sitting down with a script, whatever the story may be, and feeling drawn into that particular world, that particular story. That's what the attraction is. So what's fascinating about working in this genre in a way is that there is the umbrella of true crime but of course every story is utterly unique i think what draws me is the human story in each particular one it's not so much always about the twists and turns of the crime plot itself if you like it's actually looking to uncover the human story behind those headlines that i'm ultimately drawn to I've read that you really like to find yourself lost in a story before taking it on. Can you just explain that to me and what aspects about White House Farm really drew you in from the start? I think it's a feeling that you have when you read a script. Sometimes you read scripts and they can carry you through, but maybe on your first reading you're already thinking about directorial ideas. But actually for me that means that I'm not immersed in the story if I can have a first reading of a script and not think as a director then that's kind of a a winner for me because I'm just on a journey with the characters White House Farm was fascinating it was less kind of emotionally driven than Little Boy Blue it was a very fascinating kind of forensic approach to the story. It's obviously a very complex piece in terms of both the facts of the case itself, but also the human entanglements and relationships and family history within that piece. So it was very analytical in a way, which I found incredibly fascinating and I think was drawn to it because it didn't feel like a true crime story in the way I'd told one before. You also really immerse the viewer in the time period. Can we just talk a little bit about that, about what the mood was in the UK at the time of the crime, if you could characterize it? The setting for this story, uh, which is rural Essex, which is only about maybe 30 miles outside of London, but it might as well be a different world, a different time and a different place. Things were starting to change sort of culturally in terms of a society that was very much more for the individual, individual achievement. And what's happening in in London in the mid-1980s is really the kind of the Thatcherite boom of a sort of economy that she described as being for the go-getters, if you want it, you can have it and you can have it now. That's fueling the, the kind of the atmosphere in London, if you like. But actually, even 20, 30 miles outside of that, you're in rural Essex and it's very different. They're in many ways, they're 20 years behind what's happening in the metropolis. It's a different way of life. Hey, Mr. Grumpy, come on, cheer up. You can stay in the country. I don't want a... 
going on, sweetheart? I don't like praying. Grandma makes us scared my niece, so Dan will get bad dreams about her. Tell you what, I'll have a word with her and tell her you don't need to do it. Grandma won't listen. Well, I'm your dad, so she'll have to. Anyway, Mummy will be there to make sure. On your bums. I read a great quote about you that you really strive to surround yourself with talent on both sides of the camera. What kind of challenge did recreating that time period present for your team? First and foremost, you know, my job as a director is to surround myself with great talent and to collaborate and to use them as fellow travelers on this journey if you like of course there was something about time and place that was really important and again what i was saying about rural essex at that time feeling a little bit behind what's happening in the cities and in the metropolis and so for example the farmhouse which is a crucial location for us that farmhouse had been inhabited by that family for decades. So actually the farmhouse is representative of being from another era. You know, the decor in in that farmhouse is more from the 1950s and the 1960s, and it's not contemporary in that way. And that in itself, you know, makes a statement about that time and that place. And so, you know, there's great challenge in terms of finding the right tone and um, to get that spot on. What we had were the crime scene photographs. So we were able to get a real insight into what the minutiae, the detail that was inside that property, everything from what was on the shelves to what the wallpaper looked like. The detail in all of those shots is just so evident. And the house almost becomes a witness to the crimes as well. You really do get the feeling that if only these walls could talk. Very much so, absolutely. And from the very first, earliest discussions, the importance of the house as a character and as a keeper of secrets, as you say, was uppermost in all our discussions and needing to get the detail of all of that absolutely right to understand the crime or to understand as best we possibly can how that crime unfolded. You have to understand that house and the the layout of the house and the feel of the house and the geography of it, how the rooms relate to each other and the journeys that you can take through that house. We had to get that absolutely right in order for the audience, I think, to have some understanding of how events may have unfolded that night. That house dictates the choreography, if you like, of the crime. I can see someone, a woman, I think, maybe injured. Come on, we've got two children, little boys. Two little boys, maybe six or seven, both deceased. Also, just in terms of not only the location of the house, but that town, the small town in which it happened, that must have been a challenge to go back and really find an authenticity, because I'm sure that town's moved on. Absolutely. And we were very mindful of, we didn't want to go anywhere near the real, you know, the real town, the real village. We filmed in the same county because the landscape there is very specific and very unique to that region. But 
we felt it was respectful to situate ourselves as far away we, as we could from the real place. But nevertheless, yes, having to kind of capture the intimacy of those communities, actually, those rural farming communities are incredibly close-knit and consequently the impact that such a horror has not only on the immediate family but of course on the wider community and also I think related to that the fact that this was a rural provincial police force who turned up at this crime scene they were local local detectives and local bobbies who were presented with at the time, what was the biggest mass killing in British criminal history? About half an hour ago, my, I was at home and my dad phoned and he said that my sister had gone berserk and that she got hold of a gun. Who's in there? Your mum, dad? Also my sister and her twin sons, Nicholas and Daniel, they're only six. Wouldn't you please just go in now and check? In terms of context, you know, unfortunately, in the United States, we're all too familiar with gun violence. How did the nature of the crime fit into the history of crime in the UK? Was there anything comparable? I don't believe there was. No, I mean, as you say, I mean, our gun laws couldn't be more different to yours in, in a way. And so gun crime is is rare, I think we all have a, an understanding that farming communities have guns, have, have weapons for hunting, for, for shooting, but it's not even within those communities where you think that uh, gun ownership is prevalent. It's really not. So it's an alien thing to us as a culture. Of course, there'd been sort of criminals, armed robberies, et cetera, in the past where weapons have been used, but it's just not part of our culture, gun ownership, and consequently incredibly incredibly shocking case. Jeremy, I'm sorry it's bad news. There's no hope for any of them. They've all been shot. I don't understand. They're dead, the whole family. I'm so sorry. And then you throw in the element of mental illness, which is such an important and I think beautifully handled aspect of this story. You know, Sheila's diagnosis is schizophrenic, obviously mental illness and the understanding of it has thankfully evolved today. But what did it mean to the public and probably the police officers at the time of the murders? I think it's one of the fundamental aspects of this case. It's a fundamental reason why the case was mishandled at the outset not only the sort of the preservation of the crime scene but all the errors that i think were kind of made fundamentally boiled back down to the assumptions that were made about sheila as a potential perpetrator once it was discovered that she had a history of mental illness and she had been institutionalized in the past then that was kind of as much evidence as it appeared that they needed in order to make conclusions in this case about what had happened. There was a, a lack of understanding, a lack of curiosity, I think, about what that meant. It was simply conclusive evidence that she must have done it because she had this history of mental health issues. Wouldn't they have discussed it with you if they thought Sheila was a danger to the twins? My parents never discussed anything about Sheila or her illness, except to downplay it. 
The idea that she took her own life, does that surprise you? No, not at all. How about harming her children? I only wish it did. I think that the coverage of the case in a lot of the tabloid media as well followed that line too. And I think it led to, you know, an incredible amount of irresponsible reporting and all kinds of crazy stories were sort of flying around and were were attached to her and there was a kind of feeding frenzy around her in many ways. You know, the fact that she was a young woman, she had a career as a model, it was kind of open season on Sheila. Your depiction of her inner struggle in the first episode, particularly the scene where she's in the bathroom at Cullen's party, it's so beautifully balanced and heartbreaking. I can't imagine that was an easy balance to strike. No, it wasn't, because we have very little screen time with Sheila. That was our biggest challenge, really, is how how can we portray this incredible human being, this fully rounded individual who was a fantastic mother, a loving mother, a committed mother, who also had these issues and at times struggled with her relationship with her own children and because of the mental health issues that she was going through. But she was nevertheless a wonderful mother to those boys. We had very little screen time to try and present her as a rounded individual, a young woman with great potential who was a wonderful mother who also had struggles, serious, serious struggles. And that balance was a delicate one to strike and I think it's testament to Cressida Bonus's performance. You immediately empathise with Sheila, I feel. From the earliest scenes with her at the beginning of the episode, you connect with her and her struggles. I think it's an incredibly powerful performance given the amount of screen time she actually has. What's vital about that to the drama is that Sheila remains a powerful character throughout our six hours, even though she's no longer on screen. From the very first shot, the viewer becomes almost an investigative observer. Can you kind of talk me through that? Because I love the way the first shot dips up from black and you realize that your eyes are adjusting to the dark of the night and then where you are as it rack focuses into the farmhouse. I'm assuming that was very intentional. Yeah, absolutely. As I say, I think previously in the work that I've done in this territory, it's been very it's had an emotional motor. I think this is different. It's a more analytical, it's a more journalistic in some ways, it's a more slightly detached point of view of inviting the viewer in. And I think 
giving time to the story, giving time to absorb the story, to absorb the facts, to absorb the characters and the relationships and and the pacing of the piece was kind of designed to let things play at a very kind of measured pace. You know, one of my kind of key references for the piece was In Cold Blood, both the novel and the Capote film of recent years, where there is something quite detached, if you like, journalistic about presenting an audience with facts and complex human relationships and giving you time to kind of process and try and understand those and draw your own conclusions without feeling manipulated, as it were, by the filmmakers. And it felt like the right kind of approach for this story, not least as well, because there's shifting points of view. There needs to be kind of time for all of those perspectives and those shifting points of view to settle with the audience, I think. So much of that pacing and the tension and the shifting narrative, it creates this wonderful atmosphere around the farm and the investigation, and the viewer really feels a part of that. How integral was that to your vision? Yeah, very. I mean, I think it's a really delicate balance because in a true story like this and a horrific crime, you're absolutely right that, you know, what's governing every decision is the determination not to sensationalise anything, to be truthful, to be brutally honest about the crime and the horror of the crime, but at the same time to balance that with a respect for the victims and their families. So it's a very fine tonal balance that you're always walking, but then still to allow it to play as drama, to still have tension and suspense and the twists and turns of plot. So it was a very kind of careful, lots of micro careful decisions all the way through about are we just tipping over too far? Are we dwelling on that shot too long? Is that the right place for music or should we just leave it natural you know not to manipulate too much but at the same time you want it to feel unsettling it's a very unsettling atmosphere in this piece which i think is important in terms of it being an immersive dramatic experience otherwise we'd be making a documentary we still have to engage an audience emotionally That just really drew me back to episode one when we first go through the farmhouse and you hear the ticking of the grandfather clock, which is, you know, a comforting but unfamiliar sound at the same time. And you're going from room to room. And then there's a moment where you hear a breath and then the phone rings in the police station, and I just about jumped off the couch. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, yes, what you're describing there is everything I've tried to explain distilled into that one scene, into that opening scene. That's absolutely right. And and obviously, with it being the opening scene, it was incredibly delicate because it's your opening statement about you know what this story is and how you're going to tell it. And wanting to kind of introduce something unsettling in that house, introduce the house as a character, as you say. You know, there's lots of creaks and and squeaks around that house on the sound as we're moving around those rooms. But again, not wanting to tip too far, not wanting that to then become a kind of a, a genre piece, if you like, mm-hmm. actually to retain some naturalism and to go, here we are, 
this is a place something's happened or something is happening and settle into this and then we'll take you on that journey just trying to to get the balance right and it's delicate I, I know that you spoke to the fact that you chose out of respect not to go back to many of the locations except for the courthouse, correct? Correct, correct. I think that that was an admirable choice to make, but it must have been very difficult because it would have been far easier to have just gone back to the farmhouse and tried to imagine what it had actually been like, but you recreated that in another space. Had you ever been through the actual farmhouse? No, I've been to the village and been to the area and sort of explored that just to get a feel for the landscape and the setting. But then I think with all of these sort of true stories, you have to, in a way, then take what's authentic, what's going to make it feel real and truthful and honest, and then dramatise it. Like I say, otherwise, you know, this brilliant documentary out there that can do that but I'm not a documentary maker I make drama and so you need to kind of set yourself free a little bit from sometimes the constraints if you like and I think for me setting things in the real place can become a distraction for a viewer I think we invite you into our world of White House Farm and it's true and it's authentic and it's thoroughly researched, but you can travel through that with us without the distraction of going, oh, well, that's where it really happened. Do you see what I mean? I think sometimes that can overwhelm a drama or can be ahead of the drama where actually you just want people to trust what you're doing and to trust it's truthful, but to kind of be on that journey with you. I'm sure that recreating that environment in such a detailed and authentic way really transported the entire crew on both sides of the camera back to the place. Definitely. And we'd had access to some of the crime scene photographs, as I've mentioned before. And, you know, we were very careful about who saw those. It was select members of the crew who who needed to understand exactly what it was that we were recreating. But yes, you know, it was important for us and the cast themselves, particularly, to feel that when they were in that space, that this was our responsibility to tell the truth as best we know it was being honoured in that way. And so it did create an interesting atmosphere, to say the least, inside our farmhouse to know how close it was. As I said before, I think it's vital to the understanding of the story that we got that absolutely right. And I say, I think it was very important for the actors as well to feel the authenticity of that set. I know how much pre-production and research plays a part in your personal process. And you had the wonderful resources of both Carol's book and also Collins. But in addition to the crime scene photos, what really 
became for you the most important sources for information? I think Carol's book is the most thorough investigation of this crime as a whole with the objectivity of, you know, 30 years space, looking back at it all. Also interviews with the people themselves, with police officers. But first and foremost, I think, clearly with Colin, getting to know Colin and understanding his story, even though we don't tell the entire story through Colin's point of view, just to have time with him and to talk to him and he's incredibly open you can ask him anything about the crime anything about the relationships within that family there was no no no-go areas with Colin at all that kind of course that first person insight is incredibly powerful and I would say that I personally wouldn't have made this piece if we hadn't have had Colin's blessing. I think that was vitally important, certainly to me. I think it was to all of us. So to be able to spend that time with him and to get to know him and for him to be so generous was very special. I can also imagine that there's an emotional weight that comes with wanting to do the story justice once you've made that kind of emotional attachment to one of the key players. There's an incredible responsibility when you take on stories like this, I think. There is a responsibility and there's a responsibility to to get things right as best you possibly can and to be authentic and to be accurate. And the amount of time and effort and resources that we put into that sort of reflects our desire to to get it right and that goes from the research in pre-production you know two years three years before this piece came to fruition all the way through to our sort of final choices right at the end of the edit you feel the weight of that responsibility no question It must have also been a challenge to kind of keep all of that to six episodes. Yeah, yes. I I think if you talk to Chris Merkzer, who such a brilliant piece of writing, I think, no question, he would say it could have run to more. It's always a tricky decision as to how you ultimately structure a story such as this because it is so labyrinthine in many ways in terms of the investigation and the relationships i think six episodes does justice to this story and i think it offers a greater understanding of the story in a way that it hasn't been told before but yes no question you could have explored even further Given your dedication to research and also authenticity, I really thought that your use of foreshadowing and imagery was so well done. It was almost like a pause or or, or just a punctuation. Thank you. I mean, I think it wasn't an entirely conscious thing. That is just the way it sort of presented itself to me when I read Chris's script, that actually this is a different approach. This is something quite measured and analytical and forensic. Also, such a complicated investigation in many ways. Being able to keep people sort of up to speed with that through the twists and turns of the six hours, we knew that we'd be revisiting things later on in the trial, for example, in episode six, there needed to be 
imagery that immediately take us right back to episode one. And we go there in a kind of shorthand and we're not asking the audience to try and find their way back. We'll put them back there. So wherever we go, we hope that the audience is right there on point with us. Later that night, you say your father phoned you at home, told you your sister Sheila had... Where are we? Oh, yes. Gone berserk. I, I can't be sure of his exact words, but yes, roughly that. As we've heard, forensic evidence suggests that he was grievously injured before coming downstairs. How did he sound to you when he called? I, 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 don't, I don't recall his exact inflection, but uh, he sounded rushed, I suppose. Um, speaking more quickly than normal, but beyond that, I, I'd only be surmising if I added to it. Did he sound, for example, like he'd been shot twice in the mouth? That had to have been a very difficult thing to balance and kind of reconcile and navigate throughout because it's never heavy-handed. Good. And I think it's a beautifully crafted piece of editing. Ben Yates and Del McDonnell, who, who edited the piece, you know, that's something that we would play with quite a lot in the edit. And we had the theory of how we wanted that to play, as I've just described it. But until you try and put that into practice, again, it's quite a delicate balance to strike. The challenges of actually having an episode like episode five that suddenly turns the timeline on its head and goes back to events in Julie and Jeremy's relationship that predate the crime, but always hopefully to know kind of exactly where you are in that journey is a very sophisticated and skillful piece of editing, I think. Now that you've had the chance of, of time to kind of look back, what do you think your, your, your aims and your intentions were when you took on this story? And are you happy with where it's landed? I am very happy with where it's landed. I like to think we've sort of given a greater understanding of what is really an iconic crime, that people only have a certain understanding of, like myself, as I explained earlier on, that I had a sort of tabloid version of this story in my head. So I like to think that we have offered people greater understanding of this story. And it's how the piece ends, actually, which is um, really a speech from Colin about some redemption for Sheila, that Sheila was a wonderful mother to her two boys. And it's really where the piece concludes I know it was very important to Colin that we said something about Sheila and we remember the victims. I think to tell the human side of this story is what we set out to do and I think I think we did it. Well, that's it for this episode. I want to thank Paul Whittington for coming on the podcast and revealing the process he used, not just to faithfully recreate the time and the place of the White House farm murders, but to bring the world of rural England as it was in 1985 so vividly to life. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. This podcast will continue to dig deeply into every aspect of the series and the real-life events that inspired it. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Colin Caffell, Sheila's ex-husband and father of the two youngest victims of the crime. 
Although he was already estranged from Sheila when these horrific events occurred, the two continued to maintain a relationship as parents, and he obviously suffered terribly through the tragic loss of their twins. We'll be talking to him to get his incredible insight about the Bamber family and his first-person account of what happened at the time, the dynamics that were at play, and how it felt and still feels to have been so close to such a horrific event. The Murders at White House Farm, the podcast, is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio. Hosted by me, Lauren Bright Pacheco. The podcast is produced by Ethan Fixell, written and researched by Misha Perlman, and engineered, edited, and mixed by James Foster. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed The Murders at White House Farm, the podcast, please do so at the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And of course, be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max with all episodes available to stream now.